Welcome to Bold Faith with Courage Molina, a place where you get empowered and equipped to be who God has called you to be, do what God has called you to do, and go after everything he said you can have without hesitation or apology. Let's go. All right, let's get into this week's sermon. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Bold Faith Community Church. I am Pastor Courage Molina. Bold Faith Community Church is an online church, and it is our aim that every Christian in every household would be a minister of God's word, equipped to rightly interpret it and empowered to apply it to their personal life in every seasons of life, right? Our mission is simple yet very powerful. It is to share the good news about Christ and guide you in studying the Bible for transformation so that you can experience God's best in every aspect of your life. Now, listen, if you are looking for a church home just like that, then you have found the right place. Go ahead and drop where you are tuning in from so we can say what's up. We can see what city you're in. Now, I have an announcement I'm super excited about. Y'all can already see at the bottom. We are doing our third annual retreat. The Faith Ignited Retreat 2024 is already scheduled. And guess what? It is open for registration. It is going to be July 12th through the 15th. We are going to be returning back to Greensboro, North Carolina. It was so nice. We decided to do it twice, okay? So we're going back to the Grand Over Resort and Spa um, located in Greensboro, um, North Carolina. Absolutely amazing. You can go to boldfaithchurch.org to get more details and to secure your spot. It is. Uh, it has been a time of encountering God, of deliverance, of blessings and breakthroughs. I mean, the Lord just, he just show out. And so if you are looking to encounter God in a new way and connect with other amazing women of faith, then you don't want to miss this. So go ahead to boldfaithchurch.org. You can go after church. You don't have to go right now because we're about to get into this word. So, so don't go over there right now. Okay. Just, you can save that. Take a screenshot, take a picture. Then you can go over there. Don't go over there now. I don't want you to miss anything. Um, so we have been in the book of, Acts uh, for all year. Honestly, we've been at the book of Acts all year long, and uh, we're going to continue with Acts chapter 23. You can go ahead and get your Bible out and turn in your Bible to Acts 23, because I want you to read along with me um, all of it. We're going to read it all together as we as is our custom here. So go ahead and get your Bible out. We're going to read Acts 23. Listen. Before we get into this, though, I want to go ahead and let you know the subject that I will be speaking from um, as we cover Acts chapter 23. Um, if I had a title for this sermon, if I had a title for today's lesson, it would be Take Courage. You can trust God in the middle. I'll say it for you again, because I know some of y'all are note writers, uh, note takers. I want I want you to know the title, the section that I'm going to be speaking from, the title, the focus, the object, the lesson I want you to take away. If you don't take nothing else, I'm telling you right now from this sermon today, I want you to take courage because you can trust God in the middle. 
All right, let's take some time to pray. God, we just thank you right now for an opportunity to get in your word. God, we are so excited about the technology that allows for us to be um, together, right? Even though we are not physically together, to be able to get a word and for a word to be able to go out to the ends of the earth as you, has, as you have put on this house for us to do. God, I pray that you would remove all distractions from both my home and the homes of those that are listening. Um, God, I pray that you would not allow us to be distracted by the worries of our day, the to do list, all those things, but that we would take this time to do what is best and that is sitting and hearing a word from you. God, um, I ask that I would be decreased, that I would not get caught up in my own head and my own thoughts about how things should go or how I want this to go. And God, that I would just be fully surrendered to you. Just a joyful mouthpiece for your message. I ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. Okay. Y'all ready? Read with me. Acts 23. Um, so NIV, oh, you know what? I'm trying to think, so I want to give you all this background before we get into this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's get a little bit, a little bit of background real quick, just in case you don't know, like we're just jumping right in. So, um, Paul is already in Jerusalem and the, the, um, elders of the temple have taken him and they was beating him and it caused all this ruckus. And then the commander came and was like, what's the problem? And so they're accusing Paul of all these things. They want Paul to be killed because they don't like that. He's talking about the way they don't want him telling people these things. And so they really want to remain in power. So they create this plot, this lie, and they say that, you know, Paul is inciting the right and that he's desecrating the temple and all these things. And so now the commander, because they're under Rome control, Roman control, is like he needs to figure out what's going on. And so he's going to have him beat because the people are just yelling and not really listening. So the commander's going to have Paul beat, but then he realizes that Paul is a Roman citizen. So he can't just be beating my guy for no reason. And he's like, you know what? Take him to safety. We're going to, you know, bring him in front of the Sanhedrin and we'll let them, you know, really help us understand what is the crime that this man has committed so that we can decide, you know, what the punishment is. And so now as we start in chapter 23, Paul is standing uh, before the Sanhedrin. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. 
he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by forcing, I'm sorry, let me go back. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood, stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about this case. We are, all, we are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell them. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he had something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to, the, to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusations had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letters to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cecilia, Cecil, Cilicia, Cilicia, wow. he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Amen. So that's a lot. We're going to go back through it. So who, oh, I just feel like, okay, so like what has really happened here? What has really happened? Y'all know I got all the notes here. So Paul is first, the first thing that we see is that Paul is before the Sanhedrin and 
when he says that he's not guilty and he has a good conscience, it is the high priest that slaps him, that has him slapped in the face. This is extremely ironic because the reason the like the whole purpose of the high priest is to make sure that the law is followed right into, let me not say that. The whole purpose of the high priest is to one, uphold the law, to stand between God, um, stand as an intercessor between God and man and like offer an atonement uh, sacrifice on the day of atonement, right? So offering sacrifices and things like that. And the other reason it's ironic is because they are accusing Paul of breaking the law, but they are breaking the law by striking him and he hasn't even been heard out yet. He hasn't even been convicted of anything. So that happens right out. And so Paul calls them out on that. Now, I don't know how the high priest is dressed. They typically have like robes and things so that you know that they're the high priest. It's not, we can't really tell if that is the case here. If Paul, if, um, if the priest is dressed like a priest, right? But he's among this crowd and he's the one that had him struck. And so Paul calls him out on it. He's like, you are a hypocrite. How are you going to have me slapped for breaking the law? And by slapping me, you breaking the law. Like you calling me out on the carpet for not, uh, you know, dealing with the law. Then these people that are there, instead of addressing the fact that that is accurate, that's true. You did just have this man slapped without any legal proceedings. Instead, they are so um, focused, really, they are really truly so focused on their hatred for Paul that they're like, oh, you can't talk to him like that because he's the high priest. And Paul responds like, well, I have my to know. I didn't know that. It says, you know, Paul says, I didn't know that. This is a little tongue in cheek. Paul got a, a tad bit of a clap back. If you've been studying Acts, then you know, he have a little clap back. You know, he likes to give it out a little bit like, don't come for him because he's going to come for you. So they're asking him, how dare you talk to the high priest? He was like, oh, how was I supposed to know that he was high priest? Certainly not by his behavior. He didn't say that, but it's kind of implied. Oh, I know. Who? First of all, who else is going to be giving? <laughs> who else is going to be giving the command for you to be slapped or for you to be attacked and for somebody to follow that? It is probably somebody in charge, right? So Paul uh, probably had an idea that this dude was the high priest. But what he's saying, he's taking this opportunity to call out the hypocrisy. Oh, I didn't know he was a high priest. He sure don't act like it. <laughs> and then he apologizes. He says, you know, you know what? That's my bad. I didn't realize because the word of God reminding them. Not only do you know the law, so do I. You know, letting them know I'm not going against the law. I know the law and I'm a man who wants to uphold the law. So he says, it's right. According to our, according to the law, we're not to speak, you know, negatively about those who are governing over us. And so there Paul is just giving a little nod already. He's already building his case that not only do I know the law, but my intention is to follow it. So while your boy was out of order, you're right. I still shouldn't be saying anything against him. So, you know, he apologizes for that. Um, and so he's saying, you know, now he's going on to defend himself like he, like he always does. Um, he realizes, though, that this is a mixed group, that the Sanhedrin, he knows that this is a mixed group of Pharisees and Sadducees. And what he knows about them, which we may not know, is that one group believes in the resurrection, the Pharisees and the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. So he's like, I'm only on trial here because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. 
now those who are just who are sitting there to judge him are defending him a little bit, at least half of them, because now they're bickering. Now there's a conflict amongst the Sanhedrin between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because the Pharisees are like, well, maybe he did hear from the spirit. Maybe he did hear from the Lord. Maybe we should listen to him. Maybe we shouldn't just be so quick to dismiss him. Um, and so when this uproar starts, they go, they're starting to do this back and forth. The commander's like, okay, you know what? I, I just don't know what is going to happen and I cannot figure out. I'm not going to be able to figure out what is wrong with him if they can't even get along. The people who are supposed to be able to judge and give me some insight on what this dude has done, I'm not going to be able to get to the bottom of this because they fight. And so he takes Paul, he tells them to take Paul back to the barracks. While Paul is in the barracks, verse 11, which is really what stood out to me um, and what we're going to get to, but... Um, this is where God says to Paul while he's back in the barracks, he's in the middle of this whole situation. He says, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem. So you must also testify in Rome. He's telling Paul, don't worry. I know it looks crazy and you're in jail right now. And these people are trying to kill you, but you don't have to worry about it. Because just like you testified about me in Jerusalem, we're not done. We're just in the middle. You still have to go on to Rome. Now there's a plot to kill Paul. These folks, I said this last week and I'm going to say it again this week. These folks love a plot to kill people. It's like, friends, what are we doing? So the next morning, some of the Jews get together and they decide that they're going to kill Paul. They go to the elders. Do you hear me? They then go to the elders of the church, the church. They go to the elders of the community and they tell them, hey, this is what we're going to do. We want y'all, we're going to do the killing, but we want y'all to help us set him up. We want you to tell the commander that you want to investigate and question him some more. And we are going to kill him before he even gets to you. And then we'll be done with this. This is so serious that they take an oath. It's like taking an oath is a sacred thing. Taking a vow, I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray. I'm going to abstain from all of these things for 10 days, for seven days until this. That is such a sacred thing. And to invoke such a sacred practice to do something so evil really shows their heart and what and how far gone they are and how the enemy has certainly got into the camp here. We are going to take a sacred vow and plot to kill a man because we don't like him. That's a lot. So they do this plot. Somehow Paul's nephew, his sister's um, son, hears about it and then goes to tell Paul. Um, then Paul calls for the commander and then tells the commander to go, you know, hey, take my nephew to the commander. He's got something to tell him. Then the nephew goes, the commander is listening. The nephew tells him they plan to kill him. It's 40 men. If you send them, they'll fall for it. So the guy's like, I ain't got time for this. I'm going to go ahead and send him to the governor. So he gets Paul all this protection and in the cloak of night, the secrecy of night, he sends Paul over to where uh, the governor is and he sends this letter. He's telling the governor, I know I'm sending this man to you. I don't really know what his crime is. It seems to be an issue with their law and their beliefs, but nothing you know, that warrants death or nothing that warrants prison. So 
I don't know what's wrong with these folks, but I told them I'm sending him to you so that you can decide and they need to come and let you know what their beef is. And so Felix has him taken into um, the, the palace of Herod so that they can wait for his accusers to come and then, you know, say whatever. So that's, that's what we see. Just when I look at this, I think about like, who, like, who are these people? Understanding who these people are give us a greater insight. So we're looking at Paul. We know that Paul's an apostle. He's accused of starting these riots, of having a plot to overthrow Rome. Um, but he's a Roman citizen. He's a former Pharisee and he's a church planner. It's so good to know that he's a Roman citizen because some of the things that he experiences, even in this, is only afforded to him because of his citizenship. So... The reason that they're standing trial and he's not just being whipped because he's kind of causing this uproar, people are in an uproar against him, is because as a Roman citizen, he has rights, right? So that's another thing. Now he's in jail or he's in custody. Let me not say he's in jail. He's technically in jail. He's in custody. But because, again, he's a Roman citizen, he has some freedom. He can receive friends and family. That is a right that's afforded to him as a Roman citizen. So while it makes sense that a nephew or family member who heard about the plot against your life might come and see you, it is because he's a Roman citizen that he even has access to that, that it's even a possibility. It is also his citizenship, his natural born citizenship that gives him some influence he may not have any influence with the Jews, although he's a Pharisee or former Pharisee. He has a little bit of, he has some rights with the Rome, with the Roman government, right? Because he's a Roman citizen. So even his request to take his nephew to see the commander might not have happened if he were not a Roman citizen. So even that something he didn't even get to choose, the family that he was born into, the nation that he was born into, is the reason that he has access to some of these things. Something that's not even important to him is the reason that he has access to this, right? Then we see um, the Sanhedrin. This, is, this just reveals, you have to know who these people are so you can really get a good understanding of the insanity of their behavior, of how the enemy has gotten in. It doesn't matter what board they're on. It doesn't matter what their title is. It doesn't matter what their role is. The enemy can get in and the enemy will use anybody that makes themselves available to be used. Anybody who's not... Um, on their post, who is not sober-minded, no matter what their, you know, position or station in life is, the enemy will use them. You can clearly see this if you know who these people are in this section of scripture. The Sanhedrin. This is a group that is, that's who Paul is standing before, right? This is a group of high priests, teachers of the law, elders. It is a council or governing body, right? Um, it is the highest Jewish authority. It is the highest Jewish authority now in the Jewish community because Rome, it's under Roman control. And so the Sanhedrin has limited authority under the Roman control. But as far as the community is concerned, right, as far as the Jewish community is concerned, this is the highest authority. This authority is based on this, this belief or this expectation that they know the law and they want to uphold and protect and enforce the law. 
That's who he's standing before. For. These are people that you would expect to want the truth. They want the truth to get out. Now it's made up of two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now y'all know that Paul was a former Pharisee. He is the, it's the most influential of the three prominent parties of Judaism. So there are three prominent parties. Let me just paint this picture. Sanhedrin is a governing body. And that governing body is made up of Sadducees and Pharisees, um, elders of the temple, okay? And they are the governing body, so to speak. They're the highest Jewish authority. Now you have these different groups that have influence in, um, in Judaism, these prominent parties, right? These are the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes, Essenes, I don't know how to pronounce it, forgive me. But the Pharisee is the most strict sect and their purpose is seeking to preserve ancient Jewish traditions in the face of this like, these muddy traditions that came through as a result of um, the Israelites being held captive in Babylon. So they were in Babylon for 70 years. When you're under the rule of somebody else for that long and you don't get to do the things that you want to do, some of their practices rub off. And so even when they came back, right, when they were freed from exile, when they came back, they brought back some of those traditions and perspectives and kind of muddied the Jewish uh, beliefs, kind of like muddy in traditions and, and rules and regulations. And so the Pharisees wanted to protect against that muddying, right? Now the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, which makes sense because they're a much more political group. Um, they're more political than religious and they oppose the Pharisees. They didn't agree on everything. They opposed the Pharisees because they did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in spirits and they had a lot of differences as it related to like doctrine you know like the word the law according to moses they did not agree on even those things right um and then you have ananias who's a high priest and my first question was okay if ananias is a high priest what exactly is his job it's the supreme religious leader of the israelites let me say that again ananias who's kind of leading this group and had Paul slapped, his position is the supreme religious leader of the Israelites, makes sacrifices for sins of Israel on the day of atonement, someone who intercedes between man and God, as I said before. That's who Ananias is. So his position is to, um, to follow the law for certain. And while he is he's accusing Paul of breaking the law. He's the one that had Paul slap. It's, it's crazy. But Ananias, not just as his position as a high priest, but as a person, yes, he was high priest, but he was known as being proud and a cruel Sadducean. Um, he was sent to Rome eventually after this to answer for the questions, his question, the questions that people have of him being cruel. That to me is just, crazy and then it's happening in jerusalem jerusalem is the home of the temple it's the holy city this is a place that you'd expect for the jews to be wanting to do things that honor god it's like maybe the further away i get from where i grew up and the further away i get from my home and the further away i get from you know the traditions and the things that remind me of god maybe it would make me you know stray a bit but they in the holy city you would expect for them to be better behaved, honestly, and more interested in the truth.
You would think that the temple would be a constant reminder to them for them to honor God. But that is just, that's just not the case here. And so as we're looking at the scripture, the thing that, that the Holy Spirit continued to press upon me is like, all of this nonsense is going on. I wonder what Paul's thought process was, right? Like, I wonder what Paul's thought process was because here I am in the city that God sent me to. Because remember, the Holy Spirit was the one, all these cities that Paul was going to before, the Holy Spirit was the one who told him to go to Jerusalem. How many of you have followed God, followed the Holy Spirit to a place, did what the Holy Spirit told you to do, and then when you got to that place, it wasn't how you expected it to be? Anybody? Anybody? If you got to the, the Lord told me to quit my job. The Lord told me to do this thing. And now that I'm here, everything, it seems like my world has been turned upside down or like the entire world has gone crazy. I'm in Jerusalem. I'm in the Holy City. And these people are acting like heathens. These people are plotting to kill me. Those who have been charged with the responsibility of upholding and enforcing the law intend to break it by killing, my, by killing me and ending my life. I wonder what, what Paul was thinking. I, I feel like he, I would have been worried. I don't know about you. I, I would have been. Ain't even nobody plotting to kill me in real life right now. And I'm worried about stuff. The Lord's helping me to do something and I'm in the middle. And so I'm worried about stuff. You know? Sometimes when we look at the word, um, it's not so much about the, what God reveals is not so much lessons from what people experienced, but what I found is that sometimes we're reading what people experienced and the Holy Spirit is revealing to us the character of God, the attributes of God, because we need to be reminded of that in the season of life that we're in. Um, I want to go back to verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This really stuck out to me because the Lord is encouraging Paul to have courage, to not worry. Don't be afraid because essentially we're not done. There is a work there's an assignment that I've called you to. And even though things are difficult right now, even though these folks are plotting to kill you, even though you right now are in custody of Rome, right? Right now you're in jail, you're being held in the barrack, uh, in the barracks, even though that's true and you may not know what face you, what, how this is going to turn out or what's going to come next, take courage because just like I used you to testify in Jerusalem, I'm going to continue to use you and you're going to testify in Rome. Anybody in the middle of a situation, let me just, anybody in the middle of a situation, God told you to quit your job so you can start that business, but you haven't been able to generate the income to sustain you or to live the life that you thought you were going to live as an entrepreneur. 
anybody God told you to stop playing on the sidelines and for you to, you know, launch the ministry. And so now you've kind of gotten your foot in. Um, you've kind of started the ministry, but it's not growing the way that you hoped it would. You're not getting the support that you thought you would get. Um, anybody in the middle of something right now, let me know if I'm by myself. I'm definitely right now in the middle of something. Um, as many of you know, my husband and I, we've been married for 22 years, but we've been separated for three months. Well, we've been separated since June. So three months at the time of this, about three months. And um, our oldest is has completely cut us off, all of us. She doesn't speak to me or her dad or her siblings. And I've been praying before the separation, um, before, you know, we got cut off. I've been praying and been doing the things that God has been asking me to. And we haven't gotten to what he's promised me. I haven't gotten to the healthy, healed relationship that he's promised me. Um, not with my husband and not with our family. God has said that he is going to fully restore my family that my family would be fully restored, that there, that he is called restoration over us, restoration over our marriage and over our children. And so that sounds really good. But right now I live in an apartment by myself. I'm in the middle. I'm in the middle. It doesn't feel good in the middle. It doesn't look good in the middle. Fear abounds in the middle because it doesn't look like I thought it was going to look. It doesn't feel like I thought it was going to feel when the Lord said for me to trust him, for me to do this work, for me to step out. Um, it just, I'm a child, I'm in the middle. But God is saying to us that are in the middle, if you are in the middle, He's saying, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem. So you must also testify in Rome. Take courage. I kept you when you didn't have, when I kept you when you had a job, I'm going to keep you without one. Take courage. I kept you through your depression. I'm going to keep you through this. Take courage courage. I made a promise to you about the things that I would do in and through your life. And we are not there yet. Take courage. I made a promise. I gave you a dream. I set something down in your heart. There's a desire. There is work that I've assigned to you. Take courage in the middle. But the only way I realize that we can take courage is if we trust God. I want us to look at chapter 23 and see all the ways that God already had it set up for Paul to be kept in the middle because he's going to keep him, right? This, this, is, this is God's own. We're God's own. I am and so are you right from the beginning. Paul has the right to be, um, to be heard because of 
the fact that he's a Roman citizen. He did not make that decision on his own. God was keeping him for the middle even before he got to the middle, even before Paul would come to be Paul, even while Paul was Saul. Even while Paul was being knitted in his mother's womb, God was already keeping him because while Paul didn't know that this is what he would face, God did. So he so he was born into a Roman into Roman citizenship. If he hadn't been born into Roman citizenship, he wouldn't have had the right to be heard. He would have been flogged. He could have been handed over. He would have been mistreated more than he was. Trust God because God didn't just get on the scene. He didn't just show up because your problem showed up. He didn't just show up because the devil got in. He's not just arriving at your, your destination. He's not just arriving at your location. He is God. So he already knew about the middle before you entered into it. We can see that with Paul. We can see that with all the things that Paul went through. With even Paul's um, journey, his education, Roman citizen, Born to a Pharisee, he was a Pharisee, his dad was a Pharisee, highly educated, the opportunity to be a Pharisee, all of those things, God had his hand in all of that. All of the events, experiences, trials, overcoming triumphs, all of the things that Paul endured leading up to this. God had his hand in. The fact that his nephew was able to come and see him. It wouldn't have been possible if God hadn't been involved already. Not possible. So God kept him. The, the nephew, I mean, how did the nephew, first of all, if this is Paul's nephew, they don't know he the nephew? You don't think that they would keep a plot to kill Paul from the nephew? So how is it that the nephew was coincidentally in a position to hear the plot. Do you think that's a coincidence? That's not a coincidence. That is God's sovereignty positioning the nephew right in the right place at the right time to hear this plot. Even the commander and his temperament the, the Bible says that um, he took him by the hand when the nephew came, he took him by the hand. That taking him by the hand doesn't necessarily mean that he grabbed his hand. It could mean that he grabbed his hand. But what it really implies is that he, he somehow communicated. There was an understanding. He had the heart posture, but I'm actually interested in what you have to say. I actually want to hear what you have to say. You can trust me. Even who was the commander at this time in history, is not a coincidence. Even that isn't a coincidence. Took him by the hand to hear. Use all of these resources to safely transport Paul to the governor. Because even though he might be in a difficult situation, he ain't done. The Lord is not done with Paul yet. What can we see when we when we look at how God has put his hand in all these things and we can see there's no randomness, there's no coincidence. God is intentional. He is sovereign. He is in full control. 
That's the first thing that I noticed. God is always in control, even in times of trouble. God is always in control, even in the middle, even during the separation, even while you're healing from depression, even while you're struggling with anxiety, even while you are struggling financially, even while you are trying to find your the right system or the right whatever for your business, even while you're growing your ministry, even while you're doing your transformation, sometimes transformation calls God to pull us into a time of solitude and it could feel like isolation. But guess what? God is in control even then. I know that there's a plan. I, I was praying this morning. Um, I was praying this morning and talking to God this morning. And the thing that he continued to remind me is that I am not fighting against you know, my enemy is not my husband. My enemy is not my child. My enemy is, is not a person. My enemy is the enemy. That I battle not against flesh and blood. That there is a real enemy whose goal is to steal, to steal, kill, and to destroy. Everything that God has promised me, everything that God has for me, it is to deter me, to destroy me, and to destroy the faith of everyone connected to me. That is like their real enemy, right? And God reminded me of that this morning as I'm praying and preparing um, to bring this message. And it just was like, I mean, I know that we know this, but it was like this light bulb that went off. The plans of the enemy will not succeed. The things that you are experiencing some of that is the enemy. It's not just your growth. It's not just your stretching. The, it's the enemy has gotten in. The enemy is at work here. The enemy is at play. And instead of me being upset and angry with all of these people, I need to direct my anger, my just and righteous anger where it belongs. And that is to the enemy. It is time for us to get into a space where we are fighting the spirit with the spirit of God, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. But the beautiful thing about it is that God has given us the authority. We don't have to worry about if we're going to win because God has already overcome the world. God has already redeemed you from the hands of the enemy. And the places that we are fighting from is from victory. I'm not fighting from a place of loss. I'm fighting from victory. We've already won. I already have victory in my marriage. We have victory in our relationships and victory in the business that God called you to start and victory in that ministry, victory over the, the battles of your mind, that, that depression and anxiety, that rut, that imposter syndrome, that feeling like you're not enough, that feeling like there's always going to be a battle. Oh, I don't know who that's for. Somebody feels like, my life is going to always be a battle. That's not God's. That's not God's portion for you. That's not. Stop holding on to that. Stop claiming that as your identity. I don't care what you've been through and how long you've been going through it. Your position, your portion in life is not that everything is going to be a battle for you, that everything's going to be so hard for you. I, I see this meme a lot. It's like God gives his strongest battles to his strongest soldiers. Who said that? The Lord said in his weak, in your weakness, I am strong. Right? In the way he said. He didn't say, he didn't say nothing about that. 
It's not about us being so strong. It's about us being submitted and surrendered and, under, and understanding that we are not fighting against the people that we see, but that we are fighting against, that we have an enemy that's out there. And, and so let that be a lesson that the enemy's weapons will form. They will not succeed. He will not be able to kill what God has spoken life over. He will not be able to steal what God is protecting. He will not be able to destroy what God has built up. He may launch an attack. Listen, we under attack, okay? Let me let you know right now. Not, uh, not, that, that, not that attack could be launched against the Molina. There has been that we are under attack. We are currently under fire. Currently under fire. And though we may take a hit, we will not be killed. Though he may come in to take something, we will not be robbed. Though he may want to break something, we will not be destroyed. Because it says the weapons of the enemy may form, but it will not prosper. And his goal is to kill it. His goal is to steal it. His goal is to destroy it. He's not going to be successful in my life or in yours, especially when we recognize that it's the enemy that we are fighting against. Understanding that walking and living out your purpose and assignment won't always be easy. I know it's like, well, you just said it ain't always going to be a battle. Yes, it ain't always going to be a battle, but it ain't always going to be easy neither. It ain't going to always be hard. I'm talking to somebody who just feel like their whole life is just a struggle and everything. I mean, everything they do is just a struggle. No, it ain't always going to be that. That ain't your portion now. Stop identifying that. Stop claiming that. Rebuke that. Speak against that. Bind that thing. And lose victory in your life. In abundance and peace in your life. I'm saying it's going to be a lot, but it ain't going to be too much. You understand, you understand the difference? When you start to walk and live out your purpose and assignment as a child of the Most High God, it, it's not always going to be easy. And it's not always going to be welcomed by others. Sometimes it's going to be a lot, but it ain't never going to be too much. How can it be too much when the God of heaven is with you? He's gone before you. He is for you. Who can be against you? Who can stop you? He said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. It might be a lot, but baby, it ain't too much. It'll Listen, Luther Vandross said, never too much, never too much. It'll never be too much. Not for those of us who are one with Christ. How can it be? How can it be too much for me when he is the one who said, let there be light? When the, the power that lives in me is the same power that is destroyed, that could say to a mountain, move mountain and the mountain would be moved. The same one that has destroyed nations and kings and kingdoms. How can something be too much? The one who holds the entire world in his hand. How can it be too, how can something be too much for me when I stay in step? See, walking and living out our purpose when I stay in step with God. But this requires trust in God. It requires that I trust in God. It requires that you trust in God because that is what helps you to stay committed to the call. It's what helps you stay committed to the promise. It's not always that God is, it's not, it's not that God is, you know, 
removed his hand from you, removed the anointing from you. It's not, some, sometimes we've given up on the promise because it's taken too long, because it's too hot, because we're too exposed, because what people are saying, because it's uncomfortable, because it don't look, because this, this role that we're on right now don't look right. Baby, when I tell you, <laughs> I mean, I understand why Sarah laughed when there was a promise made to her. I understand she did not laugh and I won't deny laughing. But I understand why Sarah laughed because the promise was so far from where she was. It was so far. It was actually naturally impossible. She was past childbearing years, she had, which means she was postmenopausal. okay? She never got, never had a baby, never got pregnant that we know of. And now somebody's saying about this time next year, you're going to have like that literally makes any sense. When you think about it, sometimes you laugh to keep from crying. And so when I think of, when I close my eyes and I think about the promises, I want y'all to do this with me. Close your eyes and think about the promises that God has spoken over you. The promises that he's spoken over your life, over your ministry, over your business, the things that he told you concerning your marriage, the things that he told you concerning your money, your business, the things that he told you about your healing, about your purpose, your assignment, you know that you're hurt. I just want you to think about that. And I know that when you think about that place, in light of being in the middle of it, sometimes it makes you want to cry. I like Sarah. I laugh, right? I laugh because I'm like, so I'm going to create a study Bible for wives and I'm separated. Like it made sense kind of a little when you said it. And I was still, my husband and I were still in the same home. Who wants to listen to a wife who's separated from her husband about what the word says to wives? That seems like something I should give up on. When I think about the promise and the prayers and the seeds that I've sown in prayer and in tears, you're calling me to lead, to lead with faith and in ministry and talking to people about Bible study. And my firstborn ain't even speaking to me. Girl won't even take my call or respond to my text messages. Like, that just seems like a lot in the middle. It's a lot. But God is saying to us to take courage. Because just like, just like, he saved my marriage before. He's going to do it again. 
just like he resurrected Lazarus from the dead, he's going to be resurrecting some things in your life. Take courage, not because things are easy, not even because you're 100% sure that the promise you thought you heard is actually the promise that, you know, maybe you made it up. Maybe, maybe it wasn't the Lord that said y'all were going to reconcile. Maybe it wasn't God that told you to quit your job. Maybe you got caught up and, you know, all these podcasts and all this entrepreneurship movement. Like maybe <laughs> that's not why you can take courage. You can take, God is calling us to take courage because he is trustworthy. Because we can trust him. Because we can see that he's sovereign. He can be trusted because he's sovereign. He can be trusted because he's good. He can be trusted because he knows the beginning from the end. He knows the end and the beginning. He can be trusted. So take courage because God can be trusted in the middle. You can trust God exactly where you are with your negative bank account. You can trust God right where you are. You haven't had a kid yet. You can trust God right where you are. Your ministry hasn't grown in years. You can trust God right where you are. You're, you are separated from your husband. You can trust God right where you are. The kids out here wilding out. You can trust God right where you are because he is trustworthy. Now, this God that we put our trust in is the same God that sent his son, Jesus, to die on a cross for us. And the word of God says, if he would not keep even his own son, if he would not keep even his own son, he would give his own son to spare you an eternity in hell and damnation. What other good thing would he keep from you? Maybe you haven't accepted Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And so if you haven't, I want to give you an opportunity to do that now. Say this prayer with me. Father, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. I believe that you raised him from the dead. I now accept him as my Lord and Savior. I accept the gift of salvation right now. Thank you, Father God, for forgiving me, saving me, and giving me eternal life with you. Amen. If you said it and you believe it, even if you don't feel different, that settles it. And I want to be the first to welcome you to the family of God. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So happy to have you. Now, listen, your decision to have God as your Lord and Savior is one that you do as an individual, but it is not one that you are meant to walk out alone. God has not called us to do things in isolation. And so we would love to get some resources in your hands and to come around you and help you get connected and plugged in as you begin to walk out this life of faith. Um, so 
send us an email at praise at boldfaithchurch.org and let us know that you've just accepted Christ and someone from the care team will be in touch with you. Now, listen, maybe you decided that this is a community that you want to be planted or you've decided to rededicate your life to God. We want to hear that too. Send us an email, praise at boldfaithchurch.org. Now, you know that we are not done. We are going to get into um, a church-wide conversation. Men and women, everyone is welcome. Um, we'll do that in the Zoom. You can see the Zoom link. It's right there in the chat. It's pinned to the top, so you can go there. Um, you can give your tithes and offering at boldfaithchurch.org. If this has blessed you and you want to help us to get messages just like this out to men and women, out to the ends of the earth, then you can support us by making a donation. And we greatly appreciate that. Now, if you call Bold Faith Community Church home, then giving is what we do here. Um, we show up regularly. We study our Bibles during the week. We give our tithes and offering to this house and, and we serve. That's, that's how you know this is your home. That's how we, you want to know, like, how do I know? That's how we know this is your home. Bold Faith Community Church is your home if you're doing those things. And so thank you for those of you who give. Um, every week we couldn't do the work that God has called us to without you. If you have watched us for the first time and this has blessed you, bless us by subscribing to this channel. We're also here Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. EST with Mornings in the Word where we are reading through the Bible. It's a great opportunity for you to build the habit of being in the Word of God and spend time with your church family because we are live in the chat during that time. If you want to be a blessing to somebody else, you can go ahead and hit that share button, share it on your social media, um, share in your stories, tag us at Bold Faith Church, tag me at Courage Molina, share it in your text group and your friend group and your whatever group, you got a social media group, whatever. Share it in all those places. Now, um, get ready to get in the Zoom with us. Like I said before, like this is not over. Church is not over for us. So now it is time for us to share um, some of our burdens that we've been carrying while we're in the middle. Burdens are can be heavy because we were not meant to carry them alone. We can share some of our burdens um, and we can praise God for some of our blessings. Let our testimony be a witness of the goodness of God to our brothers and sisters in Christ and our brothers and sisters in our family. So join us um, at Bold Faith. You can go to boldfaithchurch.org if you don't see the link, the Zoom link in the chat, and you can get to the Zoom link right from there. And so I'll see you there. All right. I love you. As always, thank you so much for choosing to spend time here with us. I cannot wait to meet you and get to know you. So come on in the Zoom. All right. I love y'all. And I'll see y'all in a minute. If this episode has blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else so that you too can be a blessing. If you'd like to connect with us and help us to do the work that God has called us to do, you can give at boldfaithchurch.org. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram at boldfaithchurch and connect with me at Courage Molina. Thanks so much. Be sure to catch the next episode right here.